Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Morning. Good to see everybody, and if you are our first-time guest, welcome, man. Glad you braved the great sun and nice spring weather, as Brian was saying, to be with us. I do hope you'll grab somebody next week. We are going to even do an early morning service at 8 o'clock, as well as the 9.30 and 11 o'clock services. We're going to do three next week. As you probably know, Easter is the most attended church service in the world. I mean, that's the day if anybody's going to go to church. It's that or Christmas Eve service, probably. And so uh, grab somebody. We're making room. Uh, normally, this place is packed out at, this, at the 11 o'clock service. So, you know, if you, if about 20 or 30 of you guys want to shift to that 9.30 or 8 o'clock. Also, the cafe on the very end of this building uh, for the uh, 11 o'clock service will be open. About 40 or 50 people can get in there, and there's a camera right there that beams in over to the cafe where you can sit on the couch and be nice and cozy. Some of you are wanting to go there right now and uh, <laughs> kind of kick it back. And uh, so there's space over there too. So uh, come out next, next Sunday for Easter. I love this time of the year. I, uh, I love Easter. It reacquaints me with the why this thing has overwhelmed my life for 41 years. It reminds me of the price that Jesus paid, how he reached toward this earth, and how God the Father loved us so much that he gave the best he had to reconcile us to him. And we've been looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before he died on the cross. Last Sunday, we talked about the upper room, what's known as... Uh, where our communion comes from, the Last Supper, Eucharist, different words are used for that uh, particular thing. And we took a look at it last week as Jesus gathered with his best friends to celebrate a festival, a feast, Feast of Unleavened Bread, fell on the heels of Passover, that celebrated the Jewish people's deliverance from Egypt. When we read the Bible and we don't quite understand it because it's written and maybe it has some archaic type rituals and it has stories and there's like sacrifice, animal sacrifices. Uh, We in this postmodern world look at that in 21st century and we go, that's the weirdest stuff I've ever read in my life. But I think we need to understand that God stepped down into history and spoke history's language at that time. If he came, if Jesus had come in our time, it would have been a little different the way that it had, you know, it had happened with the, the rituals and all. But Jesus came at just the right time. That's what we learned last week. At just the right time, Christ came and died for us. And so all of history, all of Jewish history, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, all of it was speaking toward a day when the Messiah, Jesus, would come. So they were celebrating this Passover feast, which was a celebration of God's miraculous deliverance in Egypt. And if you've seen, watch the History Channel again tonight. You know, the Bible's going to be on again. And then after you do that, take this up and go, where's that in the book? You know, and, and go find it and just acquaint yourself. 
with the beautiful story of redemption that's in this thing. So God delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt's bondage, and that's all of the Old Testament. That is the premier event in the Hebrew Bible, is the Exodus. But it is pointing toward another Exodus to come in the New Testament when Jesus, the Lamb of God, remember they sacrificed a lamb at Passover, took the blood, put it on the doors, God would bypass them. You know, the priests would take their hands, put them on the lamb, and the sins of the people, you would go in for your family, the sins would be transferred to that lamb, the lamb would die. All of that is just, that stuff was going on in the surrounding areas. It wasn't just unique to Israel. There were other cultures doing that. So God uses culture's language to speak salvation to them. And so Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus gathered with his friends last week in this story, the last 24 hours, and these Jewish friends of his, as they were all good Jewish people, they knew this story very well. They had been raised. They had heard every word over and over again. But now Jesus takes the cup, he takes the bread, and instead of looking at it as the Passover, he says, this bread is my body broken for you. Now, they had to go on, you know, one of those moments. What is he talking about? And then here's the cup. And this cup is the blood of the new covenant. There's a new contract being written with man through what I'm about to do, is what Jesus is saying. The real Passover lamb is finally here. All of history just pauses. All of eternity pauses on that note and every eye turns toward that upper room and that moment. And he breaks the bread, he takes it, he eats, he offers it to his friends. He drinks the cup. There are four cups in the Passover feast. They tell us that the cup that Jesus offered that we looked at last week was the third cup. And it was known as, get this, the cup of redemption. The Redeemer takes that cup of the wine, the third cup of the Passover feast, he extends it to his friends and he says, here is a new covenant, cup of redemption. And then he says, I'm not going to drink of this wine until we do it in the kingdom to come, when God, you know, when he returns and the kingdom comes in fullness and everything is put to rights. And that would be the fourth cup. Guess what the name of the fourth cup in this ritual was? The cup of consummation. In other words, it won't be completely consummated until Jesus comes back. And Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this cup until I consummate all of this and we sit down at the table together. Then I'll drink the cup of consummation. Nobody can make this stuff up. I'm, I mean, a thousand years prior to them in that upper room had always been pointing toward Jesus. And every, I just, I mean, I'm, look, I'm getting the willies right now. I mean, every time I... I mean, it's been 41 years for me since this thing happened in my heart with Christ, and I still am just, you know, the hair stands up on my arms at times when I just see how God in his sovereignty and in his love spoke to us, even through ritual and through this Old Testament as he prepared us to receive Jesus. And so they had their last supper, they had their Passover feast, uh, he looks out at his disciples, and if you read the book of John, the gospel of John, if you read his take of it, you see that he encouraged his friends to abide in the vine, that is to stay close to him, 
Don't stray off, guys. Stay close to me in the days ahead. He warned them that there would be opposition, that there was going to be a pushback on everything that he had taught them and everything he was about to do. He encouraged them to be witnesses to him, to remember that the Holy Spirit was coming. They weren't going to be alone. That as soon as he was gone, the Holy Spirit would come and live within them and teach them and be with them. They were not going to be alone. Then he prays for himself. He prays for them. And he prayed that they be kept and that generations to come would believe in him and through their message. Then as tradition gives it, all the way back a thousand years prior, they sang. They sang a hymn before they left that upper room. And so they probably sang the Halal, Psalms 113 through 118. Probably sang about a half of it up front and then the latter half of it as they walked out of the room. So they leave that room that night after taking the Passover, what we call communion together. They leave it there in the middle of the night. They walk out into that night air in Jerusalem. They look around. Of course, there's torches all about. There's no electricity, so the city has got this glow about it. There's probably 150,000 to 200,000 people in the city for Passover, people from all over. There are vendors on the sidewalks, or whatever they had then, vendors out in the streets and all over around selling their wares. You could hear the animals because people were selling animal sacrifices for the great Passover feast. So you could hear this cacophony of just animal sounds and probably the smells in the area of people cooking in the middle of the night And you could hear just different nuances of languages throughout the city as they came down from the upper room and walked through those streets. Just trying to imagine the electricity that was in the air anyway because of Passover, but much less that this was the Passover. Everything was changing at this moment. Everything. So they come out of of their room, down out of the city and across what's known as the Kidron Valley. They walk down the valley, they walk up a hill, till they come to what's known as the Mount of Olives. It's this huge olive grove. They say olive trees can grow to be, I mean, can live for 1,000 to 1,500 years. And so maybe these olive trees were huge and just, uh, I can imagine with the glow of the the torches around them as they make their way into one of Jesus' favorite areas to go and pray. So he's got his friends with him. Judas has already taken off to do his deed. But he's got his friends with him and they walk up through the valley on into the olive trees to a place called Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Know what it means? The oil press. To a place where the olives were taken off the tree and crushed and smashed until the juice, the olive oil, would flow out of it to this place. And that is where we're going to join Jesus and his disciples this morning is at that place. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 26, if you have them. Matthew 26, verse 36. It'll be on the screens too, but I love it when you read it. It's good. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. (laughs) Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing, my father. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would breathe life on it. Take us back to that moment, Lord. Take us back to that moment in time. Place us there with the disciples, with Jesus. Help us to understand. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. You're the presence of God. We welcome you to come and do what you do best in our hearts and our life. Help me, Lord. Give me the gift of teaching, preaching for a few minutes here, Lord, that we all may understand the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Every week I put a fill-in in your handout if you want to take it out now and just track along with me. There are three blanks there. And your first one there, your first fill-in in the handout is simply this. As I read through uh, the story, it just became very apparent that even Jesus didn't want to be alone. Even Jesus didn't want to be alone. I mean, he's the son of God. But yet he goes up to this place, the oil press, where he is being smashed and he is being pressed at this point in his life because it's just a few hours from this point where he will be on the cross. But he wants his friends with him. Jesus physically collapsed. Have you ever been that week where you actually emotionally collapsed? I was involved in a, an adoption case years ago where someone I knew or was acquaintance wanted to give a child up. And they called me and they said, I can't, I can't deal. The, per, the person had a lot of problems. And they said, I, do you know a home where I can give my baby up? And I said, yeah, I do. And so it was the strangest thing to be, see happiness and sadness in the same. She brought me her four or five day old baby and she placed that baby in my arms. And when she walked out, she collapsed in the hall where my office was. Physically, emotionally wrung out from giving up what was so precious to her. And 10 minutes later, there was a couple that was just elated because they had a baby. And I mean, it was a contrast in emotions. Jesus comes to this place where he has prayed so many times and spent so much time 
with his father in prayer and also with his friends. And for some reason at this point in time, he is just overwhelmed with sorrow. He says till death. He feels like he's going to die. And Jesus wanted his friends to be with him in this point. Some theologians believe there was a cave close by and that the other disciples, uh, besides Peter, James, and John who were with Jesus, the other disciples stayed in the cave. It was a place that Jesus had gone off and maybe to pray. And so he had them stay there while he took his three that were closest to him and they went with him to the place of prayer. And, you know, I'll bet there's not many of us in this room who haven't had a time or two in our lives when we just wanted someone to be there with us. Somebody to be there in the midst of that pain, that sorrow, or maybe that impending sense of something is probably about to enter my life that I wish it wouldn't, but it looks like it's going to. And I just wish someone was with me. I just wish someone was there. Matthew 26, 38 describes it as this. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. When Moses asked God's name over in the Old Testament, some of you remember what he said. He said, I am, right? I mean, what a great answer. What's your name? I am. Okay, that's a strange name. No, you don't get it. I am. And there was a rabbi many years ago who spent the last many years of his life studying that phrase, I am, or I am that I am, uh, trying to develop it and try to understand what was being said by God, and it all boiled down to this, I will be there. God's name is I will be there. You can't go anywhere that he's not there. I will be there. But Jesus was feeling something at this moment in time, and it was such sorrow in him that he didn't feel like anybody was going to be there with him. Have you ever felt like that? Nobody was there with you? Imagine the Son of God. Having been with his Father for eternity, he had no, there was no frame, there was no reference for him to even to be able to compare and say, oh yeah, I know what this is going to be like, but now he's getting, it's becoming apparent where he's headed and it's like, oh my goodness. And your second feeling is this, and we say that God doesn't know how we feel many times. That's your second one. Ah, God doesn't know how I feel. He doesn't know the pain that I go through. He doesn't know the loneliness that I've been through. He doesn't know how alone I am, really. Have you been alone and sorrowful to the point of death? Till you felt like every ounce of reasoning and every ounce of survival was about to be pressed out of you at that moment. Jesus was at a very, very unique and special point, a hinge pin in this whole story of redemption. Three times he says this, my father, my father, crying out to his father, my father. Please, if there's any other way to do this. You ever been there? Like, man, I just wish there was another way to walk through this. And you're looking all around you and you find no exits. Like, I just wish there was some other way to walk through this. Please, my father, if there's any other way. If you haven't walked a lonely road before, you will at some time. You will feel like nobody else can sense what you're feeling. 
And no one else is going through the loss that you're going through. But we say God doesn't know it, and yet Jesus is so distraught. Years ago, when our first grandsons were born, they were born very premature. Matter of fact, one weighed three pounds and five ounces, and the other one was two pounds and I think ten, maybe two pounds and ten ounces. Uh, I, you could put them in your hand like this. And uh, they were born, like I said, very premature, but things were going well, and uh, Florence was taking really good care of them, and, you know, it was was awesome. We had prayed, and and it looked like they were going to make it, and everything was good, and went on for a few weeks, and then you get one of those phone calls you never, ever want to get. And the phone call is, Jordan's not doing well. Matter of fact, he may not make it. It's like, What? How can this happen all of a sudden? And that night we got in the car to drive over uh, to Florence. Everyone in the family, you know, we were together, but you ever felt like when you're together, you're still alone? You're, You're walking through a certain sorrow, a certain place that's unknown until you want someone with you, and there might even be people close by, but you still feel like you're the only one walking through it. I had journaled that it was like uh, a solo plane ride through the middle of a tornado and that you look back behind you and the whole plane's full of people but you don't feel like anybody's there. Jesus looked out upon his friends and he's looking out and he's going, can't you guys just be with me? Like for an hour? Can you not just stick close with me? Stay awake at least for just a little bit of time. And we say God doesn't know. Jesus doesn't know our pain, our loneliness. He doesn't know. Oh, he knows. He knows so well. And there's the father on the other end of this who has never gone without some attachment to his son, watching his son walk through that lonely place, knowing that our sins are about to be placed upon him. And we know that sin cannot survive in the presence of God. It just can't. He has to turn away from it. God is holy, righteous, pure, And there's Jesus. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. What was going on with Jesus? Why was he so sorrowful? Was it the betrayal? Judas had walked off and betrayed him. Was that what he was so distraught about? Was it the people, his friends that were over asleep? It's almost humorous, isn't it? You go over and you say, listen, guys, can you just stay awake for just a little bit of time? I mean, they've had four cups, anyway, three cups of wine. They didn't have the fourth one. They've had three cups of wine. They've had the Passover meal. They're like, Jesus, we usually go to sleep about this, you know. And they don't get the gravity of the moment. They just don't get it. They don't. And Jesus is saying, listen, please, I want you with me. Was it that? Was it the fact that he was so distraught because his closest friends were not sticking it out with him? They wouldn't be there with him? Was it the thoughts of the humiliation of what he was about to go through, that he was going to be stripped bare, beat, tortured? Was it the physical that he was thinking of, that he knew was coming within just a little bit of time? Was that what it was? Benjamin Warfield described, he's an old preacher, theologian from way back, described these terms 
of Jesus' anguish as a loathing aversion that he had to what was about to happen. Expressing a sorrow, a mental pain, a distress which hems him in on every side from which there is no escape. You ever felt like that? No door out. You are going to have to walk through this. No way out of this. Was it the pain, physical pain, the mental anguish of his friends? Was that what he was afraid of? Was that what was shaking him up? I don't think so. I mean, just think of this down through history. Even Socrates, he's in prison, gets the cup with the hemlock in it. He looks around, and it says this in in reporting how Socrates died. It says, without trembling or changing color or expression, he took the cup and he drank it. And then when his friends began to weep around him, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior. He died, it says, joyful without any remorse at all. Was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or even how about the disciples? In just a little bit of time over in Acts 5.21, or Acts 5.41, we read this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They had been beaten. But yet they leave. Woo! Praise God. We were counted worthy to be beaten for the cause of Christ. Were they braver than Jesus? Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, around 200 AD, he begged the church as he made his way to Rome to not rescue him. He said, don't, do not rescue me. And here's his words. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts Let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, if only I may gain Christ Jesus. Was Ignatius braver than Jesus? Polycarp. Isn't that a great name? Polycarp. There's an old southern boy who used to have to take carps out of fish traps and such as that. I, I like that name. Polycarp. This was a guy around 250 A.D. or so, 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna. He refused to escape when he was offered an opportunity from death. They said, here, here's the way to get out of this. Otherwise, you're going to lose your life for the cause of Christ. He refused it. They said, deny Christ. We'll allow you to live. He refused it. And they burned him at the stake. And when they lit the fire to the wood, this is what he said. As the flames came up. Oh, Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of the martyrs. There's St. Alban. Alban, the first British, British Christian martyr in the third century who was said to be cruelly beaten yet suffered he the same patiently, nay, rather joyfully, for the Lord's sake, and then he was beheaded. These guys seem to be rejoicing in the midst of great pain and difficulty. Recently, I read of a Tibetan evangelist uh, who was flogged for his faith. He was out winning people to Christ and sharing Jesus. He was flogged for his faith, and then they took him and took salt and ground it into the wounds on his back. 
Then they took him and they sewed him up in a yak skin, a wet yak skin, and put him out in the sun for three days. You know what's happening there, don't you? It's shrinking, 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 that skin. And this is what it was said of this Tibetan evangelist. His face shone with peace and joy, and his was joyful all the time, thanking God for the privilege for suffering for him. I don't think it was the physical part that Jesus was so sorrowful and broken over. I don't think that was the sorrow unto death that he felt there in that garden. I don't think it was even the betrayal of a friend that was soon to approach in this story. I don't think it was his best friends going to sleep on the job, on the watch with him, that he was suffering the most through. I don't think it was that. The martyrs were joyful. Jesus was sorrowful. What was it that had Jesus so in the depths of despair at this moment? This is your last fill-in, and it is. And God says that the problem is worse than you think. Our problem is a lot worse than we think. And that's what Jesus was dealing with, I do believe. There's another cup mentioned of in the Old Testament, one that we don't like to talk a lot about, called the cup of God's wrath. I think there was another cup, and Jesus even said that, and received that cup from the Father. That dis, you know, do you know what it was? It's your sins. It's my sins. It's the world's sins. He had never known what it was like to have sin piled upon his mind, piled upon his flesh. He never knew what it was going to be like to be separated from his Father because sin separates us from the Father. And he knew that when the sins of the world were placed upon his body and placed upon him, that there would come a separation between him and the Father, and they had never, ever been apart, ever. And the anguish came upon him, and he's wondering, what's it going to be like? What is it going to be like to be separated from the one who I've been with for eternity? The cup of God's wrath poured out on our sins. Jesus never knew the guilt of sin until that moment on the cross when it was poured upon him, our sins. Jesus has never known the absence of his Father. And 1 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our problem is a lot worse than we may think. Our problem is not that we were short with somebody yesterday. Our problem is not such that we can just say we're going to turn over a new leaf in life. Like, okay, I can do better than this. Our problem is much deeper than that. Our problem is so deep that only the Son of God could come to this point in time and pay the price for us to reconcile us to God. I said this many years ago. We don't know how good the good news is until we know how bad the bad news is. We just don't know. We don't appreciate the price. We don't appreciate what Jesus went through in the garden or on the cross until we realize how estranged and how separated from God we are and how distasteful our state and our sinfulness is to God the Father. But God loves you so much and Jesus loves you so much that he's willing to submit himself to taking your penalty on himself. 
having never, ever even known the taste of sin or separation from his father. Yet he would do that for you. And the father would send him to do that for you. For you. And makes the good news great news. Jesus is struggling, I believe, with that. What's it going to be like to be separated from my Father? What's it going to be like when all of hell is unleashed right on me on that cross? What's it going to be like? And the price repulsed Jesus because he's pure, he's holy. But he did it for us. What does Jesus say in the end? My father, you know, if there's any other way, but just as quickly, there is no hesitancy in there. He goes, not my will, but yours. If there's any other way to walk through this, if there's any other way to accomplish this, if there's any other way to get this done, it'd be really nice to know it right about now. <laughs> And I said this last week, but listen, if any old way to God would do, why would God put his only son through this? If you can make your way to God any other way, why would he go to this extreme measure to make a way for you and me to be forgiven and restored to our Father, our Creator? Jesus gets up. Goes back to them again. He looks, they're sleeping again three times. Three times. I mean, you can, you can screw up many times, you know, and Jesus just keeps coming back to you. Come on, man, get up. You, know, you can do this. Get up. He comes back. He looks out through the olive trees and imagine the glow of the torches down through that valley. He hears the marching of some feet. He looks out across it and he sees the glow and he sees a familiar face at the head of these soldiers coming down across the valley. And he looks out and he sees his friend Judas leading the Romans down through the valley and back up through the olive trees. Jesus had wrestled with what was about to come. There was no loneliness, no betrayal, even the haunting suspicion of what it was going to be like to be separated from from his father, what it will be like to become sin for the very friends that wouldn't watch and pray for him. None of this has kept him from taking the cup in the garden, the cup of God's wrath, and drinking it for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you you faced taking our sins on yourself. You faced, Lord, the faults of being separated from your Father for the sake of of this world that you and the Father love. You face betrayal. You face loneliness. You know what it's like. Father, you know what it's like to watch someone you love and have been with for eternity to suffer 
and die. You know very well, Father, what we go through. But Lord, we see glory in this story. We see hope in this story. We see our own exodus out of an old life and into a promised land in this story. Come, Jesus. I want to ask before we sing a few songs, before we close out this morning, and let's just keep praying here for a moment. As I mentioned loneliness, being at a place where you feel all alone, if you would be so bold as to just, maybe just stick your hand up and say, that's me, Tim, that's where I am right now. I just want to pray for you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, yes. You're among friends this morning, and you're among veterans who have walked these roads, and you're in a place where the God of all comfort, the God of all friendship, the God of all care and concern, where he is this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray you would come and fall upon my friends that raised their hand, and there's quite a number in here this morning. You're known as the comforter, Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside us. Would you come alongside even now and make yourself known? Come on. And one other thing. Maybe today's the day when you're, there's some clarity of vision going on and you're thinking this Jesus was very special maybe he is the son the only the one and only son of the living God who gave himself for me so that I could be reconciled to my father maybe you want to acknowledge that today and say I'm taking that step I'm responding to God's call I'm going to take this more seriously in the days ahead and I'm going to allow him to pull me and teach me and I'm going to begin to live for him. You're going to ask him to take your life this morning. You know if he's been calling you. You know if he's been wooing your heart. So if today's the day you want to acknowledge that, would you just lift your hand up and say, that's me, Tim. I want to pray for you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Father, I just pray for those who raise their hand. May your presence come even now, God. Cleanse Cleanse that heart, wash the sins away, and bring your presence and your affirmation that you love them, Lord, and have put them in right standing with their creator. And just like Jeremiah 31 says, now you will move them and move their heart to obey you. You will give them help, Lord, to live the way that you called us to live. Thank you, Lord. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.